You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industries shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Hello, everyone, and welcome to History of the Great War, episode 110. This episode is brought to you by listeners just like you, who have chosen to support the podcast on Patreon, where they get access to special Patreon-exclusive episodes, like the one to release shortly, focused on life in the occupied territories in Western Europe during the war. You can find out more info over at patreon.com slash historyofthegreatwar. If you don't want to do the whole Patreon thing, but still want to come hang out with awesome listeners, you can check out the show's Facebook page at facebook.com slash historyofthegreatwar, where I post interesting things reasonably frequently. Finally, this week, I would like to like to once again give my recommendation for the book The Hunger War by Matthew Richardson, which was a priceless source for this episode. You can find out more of my thoughts over at historyofthegreatwar.com slash thehungerwar. This will be our fifth episode where we end up talking a lot about food, but this one will be a bit different. Over the course of the last few years, I have gathered a bunch of random notes on what the soldiers at the front were eating during the war. This seemed like a good a time as any to talk about it, so I combined them all into what we will be discussing today. This episode will be broken into two sections. The first will be covering the Western Front, while the second will be a whirlwind tour around the world where we will discuss the food in the Middle East, the Ottoman Empire, Serbia, East Africa, and Russia. In all of these countries, there would be unique and interesting problems in trying to keep the soldiers at the front fed, generally related to geographical location and climate. This will be our final episode about food and the home front, and next week we will jump back into the action with one of the more interesting events of 1916, the entry of Romania into the war, followed closely by what I can only describe as a very swift kick in the face by the combined forces of Germany and Austria-Hungary. That will be a month-long series and quite an interesting one, but for now, let's jump into this episode. In The Hunger War, Matthew Richardson would say of the challenge of food on the Western Front that whilst it was relatively easy for all armies in France and Belgium to feed their soldiers whilst out of the line, and parcels from home added greatly to the comfort of the troops in this regard, the real culinary challenge of the Western Front was how to get an adequate supply of warm and nutritious food to the men whilst in the front-line trenches, and more particularly whilst in battle. Naturally, this could have a critical effect on both their morale and upon their performance in combat. To some degree, this problem was overcome by extensive use of tinned food, such as bully beef. And sometimes brave ration parties were able to get through with supplies for their comrades. But often the food of the fighting man in France and Belgium was lacking in quantity, 
and usually less than appetizing. Even supplying fresh drinking water was difficult under battle conditions. End quote. As the Western Front solidified into the trenches, the food situation became both easier and more difficult for the armies. It was easier because the lines did not move very much. For most of the front, the armies would know exactly where their men would be at any given time, often months in advance, and this made positioning field kitchens and supply depots easier. However, the static nature of the lines made the last mile of food delivery more difficult, since it was always within range of enemy guns. This meant that for all the armies, there was a pretty wide difference between what was eaten in the front lines, where tinned and preserved food was uh, typical, and when they were out of the line, where hot food was easier to obtain. There was also quite a difference between the amount of food that each side's soldiers received, especially later in the war. When the United States entered the war, its goal was to provide 4,714 calories to its soldiers every day. This would be the highest of the war, with France at 4,466 and the British at 4,193. These numbers were what was strived for, although missing them would have been pretty frequent. For the Germans, the official number was 4,000 casualties, but this was much harder to hit consistently. While the German army was often better off than those on the home front, there was not an infinite supply of food, and in mid-1916 the soldiers' rations were already being heavily cut, with meat being the first casualty, before bread and other items were also reduced. The Germans were at least good about making sure that field kitchens were as close to the front as possible, and this assured that even if there was not a ton of food, it was at least warm and prepared and as prepared as nicely as possible. The Germans were not even close to the worst off, though, and some of the soldiers we will discuss later will be far hungrier. The German army always made a priority at getting as much food to the soldiers as possible, realizing that it was a key part of morale, and even if cuts had to be made in other areas of society, the German soldier was always better off. This did not prevent the soldiers from going hungry, though, leading to some issues in 1918, when German soldiers who were supposed to be advancing felt like eating British supplies instead, but that's something to be discussed later. Most British soldiers would express some level of satisfaction in the rations provided to them, even in the front lines. Here is Alexander McClintock, part of the Canadian forces on the Western Front in 1916. Quote, Our rations in the trenches were, on the whole, excellent. There were no delicacies, and the food was not over plentiful, but it was good. The system appeared to have the purpose of keeping us like bulldogs before a fight, with enough to live on but hungry all the time. Our food consisted principally of bacon, beans, beef, bully beef, hardtack, jam, and tea. Occasionally, we had a few potatoes, and we, when we were taken back for a few days' rest, we got a good many things which difficulty to, of transport excluded from the frontline trenches. It is possible, sometimes, to beg, borrow, or even steal eggs and fresh bread and coffee. End quote. For the British, all of their food came to the front in sandbags, the ever-present transport utility, which could then be used as the front as well as well a sandbag. Some items that were not in sealed containers would take on the taste of the sandbags or just dirt in general. There was one item of British rations that was always safe from this, the ever-present tinned corned beef, better known as bully beef. This was a beef product that it was fully cooked via boiling before being put into tins. If you read anything about food from British soldiers during the war, you will definitely read about bully beef. It was a good bit of kit and could be eaten cold if necessary, but of course was better warm. 
It was also easy to mix in other things, to make a soup or a stew, anything laying around. But when the soldiers were forced to eat it day in and day out for long stretches in the trenches, I'm sure it was something that they were not very excited about. Another type of tinned food that was called makinochi. Hopefully I'm close to that on the pronunciation which was a variety of soup made with items such as carrots, potatoes, and turnips. While this was heavily issued, it was not enjoyed by all. Here is Robert Holmes, who was an American serving in the British Army. Quote, The Makinochi ration is put a pound to the can and bears a label which assures the consumer that it is scientifically prepared, well-balanced ration. Maybe so. It is my personal opinion that the inventor brought it to his task an imperfect knowledge of cookery and a perverted imagination. Open a can of Makinochi and you will find a gooey glob of grease, like rancid lard. Investigate and you will find chunks of carrot and other unidentifiable material, and now and then a bit of mystery meat. The first man who ate an oyster had courage, but the last man who ate Makinochi's unheated had more. End quote. Another item given to the men, and one they liked quite a bit more, was the rum ration. This rum was imported from the Caribbean in large containers, and then in France it was diluted and sent to the front. This would then be portioned out every morning to the soldiers, with a bit of extra handed out before attacks. As I've mentioned before, it was never enough to get the men drunk, and even at the time, the rum ration was controversial. There was there were temperance movements in pre-war Britain, and they were none too happy that the army was making alcohol so easily available to the men in uniform. The Germans had beer, wine, and schnapps, the French had white wine, and the British, they had rum. The French were even known to carry it in their canteens, to the amusement of their British allies. The alcohol ration was not present in all the Western Front armies, though. Noticeably lacking the alcohol would be the Americans, and I'm sure that many of the doughboys were jealous of their European compatriots. Another important piece of rations at the front, and I'm sure the part that many men would claim as the most important, were gifts from home. These gifts brought forward by the mail brought both more food and also variety, something that the army rations generally lacked. Here is another Canadian, George Clark, who acted as the chef in one tour of the front trenches. He talks about some of the stuff he got from home, what he did with some of the stuff that they had, but also the practice of units sort of combining together money so that they could buy more food for themselves while at the front. Quote, I'm writing this in the dugout, where I've been for the last four days. I'm sitting on an empty cartridge box watching the supper cook. I'm going into camp tonight. I've been the cook this turn in the trenches. By the way, I want to thank you for the big box of eats you sent me. They were fine. I didn't open the box at camp, where there is so much of that kind of good eats, but brought it to the dugout where it is appreciated. We certainly did enjoy it. Everything was so well packed, it was all in good order when it arrived. It is all eaten except for the little sealed box. I'm taking that back to camp. I have just turned the bacon. We will have bacon and French fried potatoes tonight, besides bread and jam, butter, tea, milk, and sugar. We have had some great meals. Today for dinner, I had beefsteak and onions, carrots, turnips, potatoes, bread, tea, and jam for the boys. That doesn't make it look like we are suffering much, does it? And we are not. At the dugout, we have had great meals. We put in a mess fund, a franc apiece for the six men, and that brings us canned milk, oatmeal, and extra vegetables. Then it is up to the cook. 
For three days, I gave the boys stews. Besides the meats, there were carrots, turnips, potatoes, pea meal, onions, and cabbage, also several oxo cubes. It surely made a very savory mess. I can understand how a woman loves to cook, and our cooking is appreciated. I don't cut the wood or haul the water. The boys rustle up the wood out of the old destroyed barns, and we get our water out of a little creek nearby. End quote. One issue that the British had early in the war was when they brought Indian troops onto the Western Front. This presented an entirely new set of difficulties when it came to providing rations for those units. Here is a British soldier describing how this problem was at least partially handled. Quote, One of the commissariat problems, which, however, has been solved satisfactorily, was the question of native meat, or the ration of meat for Indian troops serving in Europe. The solution has been found in the institution of native butcheries. A native of high caste in India would of course not eat any meat that even the shadow of a European had passed over. In coming to France, the native troops have however been granted certain religious dispensations, not only with regard to food, but in the case of Hindus, in being allowed to leave the boundaries of their own country. Nevertheless, their caste rights as to food are as strictly observed as, as possible. The goats and sheep, chiefly Corsican and Swiss, purchased for their consumption, are sent up in a truck to railhead alive, and are slaughtered by men of their own caste in a butchery arranged for the purpose, generally in a field or some open place in close proximity to the railhead. The Muslims will only eat goats or sheep slaughtered by having their throats cut, and the Hindu by being beheaded." While this was a workable solution, it was not seen as a viable long-term one, and so because of this and other issues related to the Indian troops on the Western Front, they would all be transferred to other theaters over the next few years. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. History isn't black and white, yet too often it's presented as such. Grey History the French Revolution is a long-form history podcast dedicated to exploring the ambiguities and nuances of the past. By contrasting both the experiences of contemporaries and the conclusions of historians, Grey History dives into the detail and unpacks one of the most important and disputed events in human history. From a revolution based on hope and liberty to its descent into the infamous Reign of Terror, there's plenty to discuss and plenty of grey to explore. One can't understand the modern world without understanding the French Revolution. So if you're looking for your next long-form, binge-worthy history podcast, one recommended by universities and loved by enthusiasts, then check out Grey History, the French Revolution today. Or simply search for the French Revolution. One of those theatres would be the Middle East. 
and for the British, Indian, Australian, New Zealand, Ottoman, and other nation soldiers in the Middle East, there would be unique problems, mostly related to the weather. It was generally far warmer in the Middle Eastern theater, especially during the summer, such as the one experienced by the troops during the Gallipoli campaign. In this heat, there were problems keeping food unspoiled, and even the venerable bully beef met its match and would often melt inside of its cans, creating some kind of liquidy, goopy substance that could be poured out. Joseph Murray would discuss the food situation at Gallipoli, as well as some of the other issues that the troops had for the, with the ever-present flies. Quote, I cannot understand why our rations are so meager. One would have thought that as our numbers are reduced by less than half, each time we leave the firing line, there would be additional rations, at least for a day or two, but they seem to get less. Surely they don't cut the ration requirements on the assumption that we shall need only half of the previous amount, as only half will return each time. I don't think it was possible for a man to exist, let alone live, on such meager portions of fly-infested oily cheese, or a few hard biscuits and a daily bully beef can of bully beef stew, flavored with millions of blue-black flies. I don't know what the other troops get, but this is all we have. My stomach aches for food, and aches even more after I've eaten the food that's given to me. Because I find the stories from soldiers about the flies both fascinating and extremely bothersome at the same time, I'm going to pull two quotes here that I also used during the Gallipoli episodes, but I think they deserve to be revisited. First, here's Private Harold Botton. Quote, One of the biggest curses was the flies. There was millions and millions and millions of flies. The whole of the side of the trench used to be one black swarming mass. Anything you opened, if you opened a, tan, a tin of bully and went to eat a biscuit, next minute it would be swarming with flies. They were all around your mouth and on any cuts or sores that you'd got, which all turned septic, though, through it, it was a curse, really. It really was. End quote. Then here's a gunner from the Royal Field Artillery, who discusses the practical challenges these, these flies caused when trying to eat some food. Quote, we were invaded by millions of flies. There was no escape from these beastly insects. They swarmed around everywhere. Drinking and eating was a real nightmare, and I avoided, no matter how hungry I was, the rice pudding, which was served up frequently, mixed with currants and dehydrated fruit. It was difficult to distinguish currants from flies. They looked alike in this repulsive mixture. Immediately, the lid was taken off the Dixie, the flies would swarm down and settle on the rim in a cluster, and many of them would fall into the pudding. The spreading of jam onto a hardtack biscuit was especially frustrating. Driven by the pangs of hunger, the hated apricot jam was tolerated of sheer necessity. A concerted effort by at least three of us to transfer the jam from the tin onto the biscuit was necessary. One to open the tin, one to flick away the flies, and the third to spread the jam and cover it up. End quote. The issues of weather were exacerbated by the transportation problems experienced in the theater. Unlike Gallipoli, where the men were near the water, or on the Western Front where the lines were static, the Mesopotamian and Palestinian theaters involved very long supply lines that had to be maintained. This was especially difficult early in the war, when the British had issues transporting food to the front, as it extended up the Tigris and Euphrates towards Baghdad. They tried to use the rivers, but until they were able to get the right kinds of boats, they were often reliant on more manual methods of transport and this made transporting fresh items like fruit and vegetables problematic, if not impossible. 
And instead, the men had to be given a ration of lime juice so that they could get vitamin C and prevent deficiency diseases like scurvy. There was also a pretty generous use of condensed milk, which I personally have issues just seeing. It is something to do with color and texture. I just don't like it, but it was often issued to the men to supplement their rations. Now we will start a rapid-fire discussion of food from various countries, and we will start with the Ottomans. Overall, the Ottoman troops would never have an abundance of food, and the army would almost always be short on rations. However, in some cases, this was taken to an extreme. An example of this would be the attack against the Suez Canal that the Ottomans launched in 1915. This required the Ottomans to extend their supply lines across the Sinai Desert, all the way to the canal, and this was a pretty formidable desert. Because of this, the troops were forced to be on very strict rations of not just food, but also water. The goal was to make it easy to transport the food required, and also to make sure that the men would not drink too much water every day. Here is Kemal Pasha, the leader of the expedition, to explain. Quote, the 8th Corps reported that as the supply of food for officers and men right through the desert to the canal was impossible, we must adopt a new system and call it the desert ration. It was based on a list of comestibles, the weight of which was not to exceed one kilogram per man, and comprised of biscuits, dates, and olives. As regards to water, no man must carry more than the contents of a gourd. End quote. This structure, combined with a system of wells dug along the way, allowed the Ottomans to successfully launch their attack, an impressive feat that the British almost didn't even think was possible. For the Serbian troops, the situation was dire during the defense of the country in late 1915. Before the war, the goal of the Serbian government was for each soldier to get between 2,000 and 2,500 calories per day, far less than Western armies, but it was all that could be provided. However, during the defense of the country after the German and Austrian invasion, this ration got down to somewhere between 500 and 1,600 calories. That's below the suggested intake for adults who are not physically active at all today, and these men were marching and fighting. The civilians who were with the army when they tried to escape were even worse off, and it is no wonder that by the time the Serbs got to the coast and to the British Navy, many of them were literally dying of starvation, and many of them would never recover. In one of the more exotic theaters of the war, in East Africa, where a German force led by General Paul von Letvig Vorbeck would hold out for years, they had to turn to quite the exotic animal to survive. Here is Letvig Vorbeck to explain. Quote, Owing to the general demand for fat, hippopotamus shooting became a question of existence. One has to watch until the animal's head is clearly visible, so as to hit in a spot that will cause instantaneous death. The animal then sinks, and comes up again after a little while, when it can be drawn to the bank by means of a rope, quickly made of bark. There it is cut up, and the expert knows exactly where to find the white appetizing fat. The quantity varies. A well-fed beast provides over two bucketfuls. But one has to learn not only how to prepare the fat, but also how to kill immediately with the first shot. End quote. Our final stop today is the Russian front, where the Russian army provided their soldiers with the typical ration of bread and tea and other things to fill out their calories. But there was one difference in the Russian lines. For most armies, the officers and men in the front line ate mostly the same. 
This was definitely not the case out of the line, where the officers had better options available. But in the trenches, the food was often pretty similar. For the Russian army, there was a huge difference between the quality of food provided for the officers and the men, even when in the front trenches. This is notable, if only because of the friction that would begin in 1917, as the soldiers formed their own councils and began to to separate from their officers, with food high on their list of items that they wanted to be improved. I hope you have enjoyed this sort of quick tour of the front lines and what people were eating in them. And I hope you will join me next week as we step into the Romanian theater for the first time.